Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the reasons gas prices are up is U.S. economic threats on Iran. Earlier this month, a top U.S. State Department official said the U.S. aims to do as much as possible to shut off Iran's oil export revenues. Today, leaders from Germany, France, Britain, China, and Russia met with Iran to discuss ways to work around U.S. sanctions and save the Iran nuclear deal. With me is Trita Parsi, founder and president of the National Iranian American Council. He's the author most recently of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy about the Iran nuclear deal. Thanks for joining me, Trita. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if we could start from 30,000 feet because um, there's something pretty unusual going on here. The U.S. allies in Europe and China and Russia and other countries as well, Turkey, India, they're all working around uh, this idea of how they can get away from U.S. economic pressure and continue to work with Iran. Uh, how do you see what's going on here? We're seeing major shifts in the structures of international relations right now as a result of the Trump administration essentially deciding that Europe and other traditional close allies are no longer treated as such. And the Trump administration essentially pursuing a policy in which it sees international agreements and international institutions as serving more to constrain American power than to actually bring about stability that also is very positive for the United States. The U.S. is in isolation having this view. The rest of the world, particularly in Europe, views these international institutions and agreements as absolutely essential for the type of a world order that we currently have. And as a result, this is probably the, one of the strongest deepest rifts between Europe and the United States that we have seen since World War II. Now, the negotiations between um, the members of the nuclear deal and Iran today, it sounded like they didn't go um, that great. Iran says that what they're being offered as economic compensation isn't enough. And the French foreign minister came out with a statement and said they must stop permanently threatening to break their commitments to the nuclear deal. They got to stop the threats so that we can find solutions so that Iran can have the necessary economic compensation. There seems to be some real stress between the the parties here. Um, There is some stress, but I think the real stress is not between the parties as much as it is between these parties and the United States. The United States walked out of this deal. All of the others are trying to keep it and they're trying to find a way that would be satisfactory to all of them that would ensure its survival. And in that process, there's going to be some gives and takes and there's going to be some tensions. What the Iranians are worried about is that the Europeans are coming in with promises, but not guarantees. And in their perspective, there's an unevenness, there's a um, uh, an asymmetric situation because Iran has to provide guarantees that it doesn't restart enrichment above 3.75%, that it doesn't start um, uh, stockpiling low-enriched uranium beyond three or 400 kilos. Those are guarantees. Those are not promises. And they want the same strength of guarantees from the Europeans when it comes to the economic uh, compensation that the Iranians were promised under the deal. Well, and the European position is that's impossible to give that degree of uh, 
uh, guarantees, but they're trying to do their best. And the question is if they can find a balance that allows this deal to survive. Well, can the U.S. effectively stick it to European companies? Total, the um, energy company from France is already pulled out of a deal with Iran. And there's indications that the U.S. is, you know, just going to go after uh, a lot of companies, a lot of big companies. And even in the statement today, the EU foreign minister talked kind of vaguely about medium and small size companies that they're, they seem to be worried that the big companies are going to pull out. Yeah, the big companies are already pulling out. And it's not just because of the threats of the sanctions. It's the combination of the fact that they are not convinced that the European governments can protect European companies. And even if they could, they're not going to risk their access to the American market in order to have access to the Iranian market. In that sense, the Trump administration has succeeded in presenting with the choices either the U.S. or Iran. Um, so as a result, I think by and large, the focus has now shifted to smaller and medium-sized companies that don't have much exposure to the U.S. market and as a result um, would like to get into the Iranian market and are not losing any access to the American market because they already don't have it. So the kind of things that the U.S. is doing, I noticed the ambassador to Germany um, had a t- tweet on Twitter that said uh, – the the companies in Germany should wind down operations in Iran immediately, and he's also been you know kind of moving around and, and talking with um, the government there about their position on uh, on Saudi Arabia and try to get more friendly with Saudi Arabia, who they've broke relations with over uh, the war in Yemen. Essentially, um, there's some wild things going on. There's some very wild things going on, and one has to remember one very critical point. Even if some of these companies now end up essentially folding to the pressure from the Trump administration, we have to understand that they're doing this very reluctantly. They fundamentally disagree with Trump's policies, and even if they fold, this is going to cost the United States a lot because this is not the way you treat allies. And in the long run, it's going to have significant expenses for the U.S., I fear, because it's going to give all of these countries incentives to essentially not have as strong of a relationship with the United States, but actually have a little bit more distance and strengthen the relations with other countries because they feel that they ended up becoming so dependent on the United States that the United States can now put that type of a pressure on them. So the natural reaction is to, over time, create a bit of a distance and reduce that dependency. That's not good for the United States. The United States is much stronger when he has strong allies that it is on a much friendlier terms with. I'm talking with Trita Parsi, founder and president of the National Iranian American Council, and we're talking about the meeting today between uh, U.S. allies and in Europe and China and Russia and their discussions with Iran to work around the U.S. sanctions on the Iran nuclear deal. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalek, and he'll be telling us about this year's Carlo Vivari Film Festival. I wanted to say something about the players who are not in the Iran nuclear deal, Trita. Um, Turkey, India, um, they're, they're big players in with, and they're supporting Iran in this. Um, how, how do the other countries factor in here? Those are very important countries at the end of the day because if the Trump administration is going to succeed with what they're 
claiming that they want to do, which is to put so much pressure on Iran so that Iran essentially would have to capitulate, then you cannot afford having major countries like Russia, China, Turkey, India continue their trade and continue their oil sales or oil purchases of Iran from Iran. Um, and there are no clear indications that those countries would fall. Now that perhaps the Indians will reduce their purchases a little bit, the Europeans may actually increase their purchases of Iranian oil in order to make sure that the nuclear deal survives. So you have, again, going back to your first question, a rather bizarre situation in which so many of these countries are working together against the United States. I wanted to say something about um, kind of some of the peripheral issues around Iran. I noticed that Rudolph Giuliani was speaking at the annual meeting of the National Council of Resistance of Iran, the Mujahideen Kalk organization. They had an event in Paris, and he was guaranteeing that um, the Trump administration was going to bring down the Iranian regime. There was also um, uh, some sort of uh, explosion, attempted bombing of this event, and people are accusing the Iranian government of being involved. What do, what do you see going on here in the periphery? Well, if the listeners are starting to feel that this is sounding like Iraq all over again, well, it is because it is starting to become Iraq all over again. You have here uh, a, an opposition group that up until just a couple of years ago was on the United States list of terrorist organizations with a very, very bloody past, including killing several Americans and serving as Saddam Hussein's um, personal militia in Iraq during the 1990s, doing a lot of ethnic cleansing on behalf of Saddam. They are now embraced by Giuliani and several people in the Trump administration, and they're talking about them as if they are now the new Ahmad Chalabi who's going to take power in Iran. So when Trump is going out there and saying, look, they're not looking for regime change, they're just putting pressure on Iran in order to get a new deal, None of the things the Trump administration is currently doing is actually compatible with that line. Rather, what we're seeing is maximum pressure heading towards some form of a confrontation or a regime change policy. And we know quite well how that ended up last time the United States pursued it. And the Mujahideen Kalk always manages to get an interesting crowd to their annual events. I mean, Stephen Harper, the former prime minister of Canada, was there. Uh, the other, you know, seemingly credible people go and um, and talk. And uh, I know that they were bussing in people and paying them to be in the crowd to make the crowd look bigger. It's, it's quite a show. I, I don't really get the interest for some of the uh, participants like Stephen Harper. Well, when they pay you roughly $50,000 for a three-minute speech, um, it is something that clearly uh, a lot of officials have decided is a good way for them to make money, particularly when they do it three times a year. You're talking about $150,000 for a total of nine minutes of giving speeches. So uh, that's how they're getting these people. And in addition, as you mentioned, most of the people in the crowd are actually not Iranian um, diaspora. They're actually bust in from Poland and from some of the Eastern European countries. The promise is that you get a free trip to Paris. All you have to do is to sit at this event for four hours. And there's some very funny pictures on Twitter of um, uh, uh, Eastern Europeans looking absolutely bored out of their mind sitting in those crowds, many of them falling asleep. But this organization does it to fill it out and make it appear as if they actually have a strong following and they don't. 
One of the other things you see quite a bit of in the um, kind of social media news reports are accusations about the um, protests in Iran, the economic pressure in Iran is working, and that um, there's a lot of political tumult that's going to really help change things in Iran. Why do you, how do you respond to the, the, the idea that um, some of the protests in Iran recently over economic conditions are, are going are gonna to break the camel's back here and something is going on? Well, something is going on. The people are uh, extremely upset about the economic situation as well as the political situation. And in, in some parts of the country, the south of the country right now, you have an ongoing and long-standing uh, uh, environmental crisis that has now reached a climax in which water scarcity has become a real issue. People warned about this 10 years ago that Iran and many of the countries in the Middle East are going to be some of the first countries that will really feel the pain of climate change. And we're seeing it right now. And there's very genuine grievances that the government has not at all done enough to be able to uh, prevent it from happening or to at least alleviate some of these things. But at the same time, it's also very clear that there are elements on the outside that are trying to take advantage of these grievances and perhaps co-opt some of these protests in order to turn them into something um, uh, uh, more in the sense of uh, going all the way for regime change, etc. That doesn't mean that there aren't real grievances, though, and that these protests are not genuine and real. They are. But there's also a likelihood, uh, a rather distinct likelihood, that there's elements on the outside that are further trying to fuel this. We just saw a report this past week that um, uh, the Trump administration has put up a, a coordinating body with the Israeli government for the purpose of um, uh, instigating protest inside of Iran. Um, before we let you go, I want to get back to the sanctions issue. And I noticed that European Union lawmakers uh, backed a plan for the European Investment Bank to work inside of Iran the other day. Um, are, are wheels turning that we don't necessarily see in the news when it comes to the sanctions that uh, that are actually happening, that, that, that are making moves? I think there's some attempts. I think there's reasons to be somewhat skeptical um, in the sense that it's going to be very difficult for the Europeans to convince some of these banks to go in a direction that they themselves had not chosen to go based on just the fundamentals of the economics. I think uh, an effort by the Europeans to actually create a new bank whose only purpose would be to finance projects to, in Iran may actually have a higher likelihood of success than trying to push some of these existing things to go in this direction. But what you are seeing is that the Europeans are working very hard and thinking way outside of the box in order to save this nuclear deal, because for them, this is about national security. In the absence of this deal, and the Iranians then restarting their nuclear program, they believe, and in my view correctly, that we're going to be back on a path towards war with Iran. And that is something that would be an absolute disaster for the Middle East. And the Europeans will feel that very quickly uh, because of refugee flows and other things, while the United States is protected by two oceans, and as a result, does not see the reverberations of this in the same way as the Europeans do. 
Trita Parsi is founder and president of the National Iranian American Council. He's the author of Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. It's about the Iran nuclear deal. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the meeting in Europe today between uh, the participants in the Iran nuclear deal and Iran. Thank you so much for having me. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Film contributor Milos Stalik is in the Czech Republic. He's at the 53rd annual Karlo Vivari Film Festival in the spa town of Karlo Vivari. Greetings, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Milos, you go to some lengths to attend this particular film festival every year. Why is Karlo Vivari so important? There are many reasons. You know, it's an old festival. It's obviously been around for five decades. It's survived a lot. Uh, politically, but it is unique in the sense that it it's the one place where you can see many films, particularly from the former Eastern Bloc countries, that simply don't get shown by other festivals. And so that's a place of discovery. Those films tend to be interesting because they're much more connected to history, to politics, and gives you another part of the world that we don't see represented too often. And it looks like it attracts a interesting crowd of um, even U.S. people. The tributes this year are with uh, people everyone would be familiar with. Well, I mean, it's an interesting festival because, you know, it has many sections. It shows 300 films. There's competitions, a documentary competition, feature competition. It's recognized as a type A festival, so it's parallel in the same league as Cannes, Locarno, Venice, etc., and it's tremendously successful with young people who obviously like a lot of American films. So, for example, uh, Richard Linklater was a pretty big hit here. Terry Gilliam, who just arrived and showed his uh, Don Quixote film, uh, was a big hit. And uh, Tim Robbins received the award on the opening night, the president's uh, recognition of the festival for lifetime achievement. And I understand that there was a showing of Loves of a Blonde, the Milos Forman film, one of the great uh, Czech filmmakers who came to the U.S. Yeah, yeah, Milos Forman died this year, you know, and so certainly he was a uh, a major supporter of the festival in the first place. He came here many times. And so instead of opening with a new film, they chose to open with an old one of Loves of Blonde, which they showed in 35 millimeter, which was an imperfect print, which had scratches, but it was still brilliant, beautiful, wonderful, funny, original if you if you open that film today at any festival, it would certainly be the best film of the year. All right. Good reason to see Loves of a Blonde again. Now, uh, there are some really interesting films that have shown there, and one that has been widely anticipated is Putin's Witnesses, a film by Vitaly Mansky. Yeah, Vitaly Mansky is a Russian film director who now lives in Latvia, and that is because the, the last film that he made, Under the Sun, which was made in North Korea and revealed how the North Koreans manipulate uh, the representation of life in North Korea without the North Koreans' knowledge. The North Koreans were very upset, complained to, to, to Russia, and so Mansky then fell afoul of the Russian government uh, because the film was too problematic, so he went into exile uh, to, to Latvia. And now he goes back to footage that he actually shot 
for the most part, back at the time that Putin was just coming to power. And so Putin's witnesses covers how Putin ascended to power on New Year's Eve when Boris Yeltsin suddenly resigned and Putin delivered the New Year's address. Mansky was given unprecedented access to Putin, also to Yeltsin. So we see a lot of unusual footage. I mean, Putin visiting his old school teacher with whom, uh, whom he adores. We see Yeltsin watching the elections on TV at home at a time when Yeltsin really looks very, very bad. He had already been sick for quite a long time. So it's, it's quite a unique window into that period of Russian history. Now, in some of the uh, material sent with the film, he says, my testimony is very important, not only for Russian society to cure it from an advanced disease, but also for other countries to prevent them from losing their freedom. He is releasing this footage and this film about Putin as something of a warning thing. Does that come through in the film? No. It's the one problem that the film has, because you really don't see behind the wall that Putin very carefully and obviously with great consciousness puts between himself or or surrounds himself with. So you really don't penetrate through that and get beyond that. And I don't think that anybody really does. The other portion of it is, of course, that even though Mansky spends a great deal of time explaining how he had, quote-unquote, relative freedom to do what he wanted, still he was subject to Putin's approval, so he kind of made it on command, that the fact that he was given access. So that's the problem with the film, because you have to realize the perspective was that he was kind of a hired hand of Russian television, making this documentary about Putin, about Yeltsin, at a time when it was not as politically sensitive. Still, Putin, as the product of the KGB, is not exactly forthcoming or revealing about himself. You know, his last film, Under the Sun, a lot of people thought this was going to be a really inside look at North Korea. And it wasn't really, but it was interesting. And I get the feeling like that's the same thing that's going on with this film. You don't really get in, but it's kind of interesting to watch. Well, it's interesting to watch to see some of the dynamics, you know, that that go on. The fact that it was not very sure which way it was going to go, that Putin kind of came out of nowhere. The suggestion that, of course, he was manipulating Yeltsin behind the scenes, although there's no rationale or it's not explicitly stated, still gives you some kind of a sense of how, uh, what an operator he really is. Let's take a look at another film, and it's made by Rade Yuda. He's a member of the Romanian New Wave, a young filmmaker, and his film has the catchy title, I Don't Care If We Go Down in History as Barbarians. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's got to qualify as one of the longer film titles in history, but it actually it's an actual quote from uh, Marshal Antonescu, who was the Romanian leader during World War II. And this film, which is very unique and very special in terms of how it was made and how it's structured and the approach to it, is the Romanian role in the killing of what turned out to be 480,000 Jews, uh, the second largest number of Jews killed after Germany were killed by Romanian participation during World War II, many of them in Ukraine all positioned as a fight against the communists and against the Soviet Union because Romania was on the side of the Germans. And Rade Yude, whose film, which is best known in the U.S., was a film called Aferim, also a, a remarkable film set in the 19th century. Here has a very unusual approach because 
He follows a, uh, a theater director who is trying to stage a reenactment of what happened in, in Romania during World War II, bringing this issue to light. So much of the beginning of the film is very talky, lays a lot of the context, the historical context, which I certainly didn't know, uh, about what Romania's role was. She's trying to get permission from the city to stage this. And then about the second half or 40% of the film is the actual reenactment. What is chilling about it is, is that in this reenactment, which takes place with lights, with mock soldiers, with extras, all of whom are dressed up in the uniforms, Nazi uniforms, Bolshevik uniforms, Romanian army uniforms. There are huge crowds standing around the square watching this. And, of course, most of them sympathize and cheer on the Romanians as they go, you know, with their nationalistic fervor to, to, to execute the Jews. She uses a lot of interesting cinematic devices, for example, like Godard, uh, the characters read from texts, including here from Isaac Babel and from Hannah Arendt, to give us this, this whole context. In a, in, a, in a very interesting and new way, it really brings this film front center into contemporary reality, where Romania's role in uh, World War II is still being denied. Much of it is, hey, we were fighting the communists, there are streets still named after Antonescu. So there's been a lot of whitewashing of history without having to come to terms with it. Even Romania had to go through this process of admitting some of the role prior to being admitted into the EU. The parallels with what's happening today are interesting there. It's almost like nationalism. There's, you know, nothing you can't do if, if that is ugly to if it, if nationalism is your goal and you want to do this patriotic thing, you can do anything you want. Right. It was interesting because Radai Judev was here. You know, he gave a press conference. He pulled out his cell phone to bring up a, a map of, you know, Romania to find all the streets that were still named after Antonescu, who after the war was captured by the Soviets, was tried as a war criminal and was executed. So, uh, you know, the fact that he's still being treated as a hero today is is, is just one indication all right, that film is I Do Not Care If We Go Down in History as Barbarians. We're talking with Milo Stalik. He is at the 53rd Carla Vivari Film Festival in the Czech Republic. Finally, we go to Jumpman, which takes us back to Russia, where we began. And uh, this film has a lot to say about corruption in Russian society. Yeah, it's directed by Ivan Twardowski. It's his third feature. His film before this was uh, also kind of strange, called Zoology, in which uh, the main character become, grows a tail like a mermaid. So that's the principle of it. Here we begin with a scene in which a mother, her name is Oksana, is giving up her child, her crying, screaming baby, which is being put into a baby box, which I guess exists in Russia for mothers or parents to put their babies or their children whom they don't want. Now we shift 16 years later. Denis, who is the young boy who, of course, has survived, is living in an orphanage. Mom comes to get him and kidnaps him out of the orphanage. She's living uh, quite well. She's living in Moscow in a nice apartment. But she's a part of this whole circle of friends and people who engage and get Denis involved in running scams against motorists. So Dennis becomes the jump man. That's the title. And actually, this is apparently taken from real life. Tverdowski thought for quite a long time about, about making a documentary about this. 
people who jump in front of a moving car, which has been very carefully selected for the kind of money that the owner has. Usually it's a very fancy car and uh, somehow uh, are trained to survive jumping in front of that car, fatal injuries, which are much worse than what they receive. And then, of course, the scam begins because the policeman who arrives on the scene, who is, of course, there prepared and waiting, writes up the report. The, the ambulance drivers who arrive, the hospital, admitting hospital, the doctor, uh, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the judge, all of them are in on the scheme, waiting, of course, for the victim, the car driver, to pay off a very large sum of money. So that's the scheme that goes on. In the process, of course, we see how precisely this corruption in Russia really reaches into every tenet of society, how the people who are part of this corruption absolutely don't care. Tverdovsky said that he made this film mostly for the young generation because he thought that this new young generation was really growing up disconnected and not caring about the ethics and morals of what it is that they do. They may know that their parents are involved in taking bribes and think nothing of it. It's part of the everyday scenario. The main character here, Dennis, ultimately tries to get out of this and ends up going back to the orphanage, the only place where he can really find a human connection, some kind of love, some kind of understanding. Uh, what makes him ability, makes him so good, by the way, at being the jumpman, is because he has a medical condition in which he doesn't feel enough much pain. So that makes it possible for him to go through with these, through these uh, quite quite daring stunts of jumping in front of a moving car. All right. That sounds like a completely fascinating film, uh, Jump Man, and I, I hope we get to see that one. Milos, I wanted to say something about the documentary film great Claude Lanzmann, who died uh, yesterday. We've talked about him a bunch on the program, and uh, he did Shoah, uh, most notably, but lots of other films. And talk about a guy w with a moral center. This, this guy had one. Well, I mean, this is the generation of filmmakers that in some ways we're losing. You know, a Romanian filmmaker, Lucien Pintaleia, who was from this older generation, died this year. There's a quote from him in this Radu Yuda film in which at one point he faced not being able to make films at all in Romania under Ceausescu. So he went into exile and he told Ceausescu that if he was not allowed to make films or given some opportunity to emigrate and work, that he would set himself on fire. So... Uh, Claude Lanzmann was of this character, Hermano Olmi, an Italian filmmaker, uh, post-neorealist great, who also had like four months ago. So we're losing this generation, which really represents an engagement with history, an engagement with the ethics and moral standing of society, and the feeling that we are each responsible to each other, that history has to be re-examined in, 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 in Lanzmann's case. He spent so much of his life going back through it, using every trick in the book, to uncover what really went on in the in the concentration camps and during the Holocaust so many years later, because like what uh, Radu Yudit does in this film, nobody feels complicit. Everybody feels that history is behind us and we can go on. And it's not true unless we go back and really resolve and solve what happened and understand our feeling. Again, to go back to Radu Yudit, which also kind of in some way reflects on Claude Lanzmann. He said here of how film can have an effect because he said if he heard of a case in which somebody in California saw a film by Abbas Kiarostami, after which 
the empathetic understanding of, uh, of Iran changed his views. And so if we know each other, we are less likely to bomb and hurt each other. Milos Dalek at the Karlo Vivari Film Festival in the Czech Republic. Thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jerome. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here to make suggestions for you for your international weekend. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are we going first? Uh, We are going uh, this weekend to India. We're also going to go back in time to the Second World War era, South Asia, what today we call India and Bangladesh, and a very little-known chapter of history of American involvement in that part of the world and the serendipity that's involved all of that. It's called Following the Box, and it's a very interesting story has come out of it. Uh, There's a new exhibition at the Loyola University University Museum of Art following the box, and the curators here are are also participants in the uh, exhibit, and Jerry Zabrial is uh, here, and Alan Teller, they're the couple behind the following the box project. Thanks for joining me. Good to see you. Thank you so much. Good seeing you. Now, um, I went around and looked at the exhibit. It's really interesting, and it's all sparked by this box that you guys bumped into at a estate sale. Can you explain what you got there? <laughs> it, was, it was an estate sale in Northbrook, of all places, uh, and it was a, a, photog- a, a collector by the name of Irving Lydon, who is a psychologist, but he's a part-time photography collector, and he passed away, unfortunately, suddenly, and his wife was selling off his collection, and we went and we bought a few things, and then literally under a couch, there was a shoebox, and we pulled the shoebox out, and inside there were um, envelopes, brown envelopes that contained four by five inch negatives, the old press photographer large format negatives. And stapled to each envelope was an absolutely stunningly beautiful photograph that was a contact print of that negative. Uh, temples, portraits, um, ethnographic studies, village shots, not tourist photographs at all. You know, clearly very, very accomplished and very beautiful, and we were struck by it. It was $20, and we bought it, and it kind of stayed hidden for a while. And we collect a lot of things, and it stayed hidden for a while until it found the appropriate moment to emerge. Uh, Jerry, what happened after that? You, get, you, you became quite involved with the, the research on these photos. Right. Well, what happened was Alan was teaching a class at Lake Forest College and on um, photography and anthropology. And so, um, and we were using a lot of our archive uh, for the, um, f- with the students because we have all this material. And we said, don't we have this box of Indian photographs somewhere? So we pulled it out. And one of uh, the young students just completely glommed on to it and got obsessed. Now, you will probably hear the word obsessed um, throughout this interview because ap- almost everybody who has touched this project has gotten obsessed, uh, including ourselves. Fair warning, Jerome. Fair warning, <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, so she started to do some research. So now on every photograph, it was marked 10th PTU. 
Uh, then there was a date, um, usually the 3rd of uh, May, 1945. There was a number. And then there was like a, a generic description, Indian man, Hindu temple. Yeah, well, that really helps us out a lot. And so she, she took these and she started to um, do some research and found that, that different um, air bases that were all over India. Now, we know nothing about what was going on um, during uh, World War II in India and the, the, the CBI, the China-Burma um, uh, India theater. And uh, she started to narrow it down to West Bengal. And it was at that time that we started to learn about India and about West Bengal. And then after that, we put the box away. And then our son, Max, who is a musician and uh, who's been on um, VZ actually several times, Max ZT, doing a little promo for him, um, he got a, um, a fellowship to go study um, in India, in Mumbai, with a very well-known musician, Shiv Kumar Sharma. And uh, we decided to go to India to see who is this man that's influencing our son. And so we said, well, we have these box of photos. Let's go see what we can find. Um, it, uh, it's, it's a pretty incredible story that you end up uh, looking into this box of photos in India. Uh, Nari, do you have some thoughts here? Yeah, I'm just thinking that there, there may be – we've had several other guests here in the last few months where it's basically come out to the whole idea of uh, something really wonderful happening. There is initially some intellectual curiosity, some serendipity, and then all of a sudden the project gets outsourced to a bunch of young people who have plenty of time to do this, and all of a sudden <laughs> something really wonderful comes out of it. Uh, several other exhibitions around here have had similar kinds of narratives. Is that, or do you think you guys are out to like a new pattern or a new business model <laughs> for, for doing really this kind of stuff? Yeah, go ahead. I, I don't know if it's a business model, yeah. but uh, necessarily, but I think that, uh, that there is a new understanding right. that, um, that there's no single narrative yeah. That there are multiple narratives, right. and that um, the more voices we hear, the richer the the story is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really what's behind all of this. Was that when we took those photos to India to see whether or not people there were interested, the response was so overwhelming, and the questions that they had about those pictures were different questions than what we had, and so their understanding contributed to our understanding, and I think that that's what led to, so this is the, the insight was, ha, huh, this is not something we should just do by ourselves, that this is, we're taking these photos, we're bringing it back to India, and we see ourselves basically as conduits to just bring this back, and now let's have new voices respond to it. Now, you know, yeah. one thing that we did not mention is, is that we found that these photographs were taken by an American soldier in 1945. Okay. And we still don't know who, we don't that, know who that is. Yeah. We still so, don't know who yeah. that person is. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's completely anonymous. And, and that's what's also wonderful because this whole project has been such a puzzle and such a mystery. Right. And so given starting with the photographs themselves and with the person who took them, like, who is he and why did he take them? And, and the thing that also that grabbed us about these photos, they weren't just your usual photos that you would see 
uh, taken in India of these exotic women in saris or of uh, beggars on the street or the, you know, the, the quintessential snake charmer. I just hate those photos. And these were very, very different. And there was a, a, a total connection between the photographer and the subject. And that's very, very curious to us. And that's, it still is. And that's why these photographs are, are so unusual. And we've shown them to um, people at the Library of Congress. We've showed them to anthropologists of the University of Chicago. We've showed them to experts, all various archives in India. And no one has seen photographs like that taken by an American of Indian people uh, mm-hmm. in 1945, before partition, when it was still under British rule. I'm talking with Jerry's Brial and Alan Teller, and we're d- discussing their project following the box. It is an exhibition now at the Loyola University Museum of Art. Um, you end up getting a Fulbright grant and right. some ideas about how to expand on the project, and, and you zone in a little more closely on uh, where the photos came from in in Bengal. Uh, what happens there, Alan? Well, we had the, – the Fulbright had two components. One was the research part to try to figure out where this might have been. We knew that it was Bengal at this point, which then became West Bengal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our research took us to eventually to the Kharagpur area, uh, which is west of Kolkata. And um, – but the second part was to, again, recognize the power of old photographs to inspire the creation of new artwork. And so we – met with several Indian artists and we presented the material to them and um, basically made digital copies of all the photos as well as physical copies. And we gave the prints to people and we said, if this project moves you, um, what we would like would be if you either incorporate these photos into new artwork or you deconstruct them and use pieces or you just be inspired by it. And we decided not to limit it just to photographers but to work with Filmmakers and painters and a comic book artist, uh, you know, a, a graphic novelist, folk artists, uh, conceptual artists, um, installation artists, so that it broadened the scope so that it wasn't just flat pieces, but it became a much more immersive thing. And that was a significant part of it. And one of your collaborators is here for the opening tonight and yes. to work on the installation of his project. Uh, Chhatrapati Dato is here. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's it's great to be here with all of you. Um, explain, um, Alan and Jerry mentioned that um, people in India look at this time period and what was happening then entirely differently than we see it. And what does 1943 mean to you and to most people who were from who are familiar with uh, West Bengal? Yeah, just to take that question a little ahead, I think uh, primarily when a set of photographs like that are placed in front of you, uh, you're actually faced with many issues. First of all, uh, 70 years uh, in today's context is a huge amount of time. A lot has happened in the last 20, forget about 70. And so, first of all, you're you're faced with this uh, whole thing about uh, uh, trying to visualize another time, being in another time as an artist, and trying to 
to really uh, figure out what that time would mean in today's context. I mean, it is not just about uh, creating an artwork that replicates a time, but about how that time means more in today's context. So as an artist, I think, uh, you know, this was a great challenge that a lot of us took up and uh, we're extremely uh, uh, happy to uh, sort of have a challenge like this where we could not only get into the socio-political history of a time, but make it meaningful in today's context. And so in 1943, what was going on in right. Bengal so, in the so actually, China, Burma, yeah, India theater? Yeah, if, if uh, just to bring in a wider sort of uh, uh, scenario to it, I mean, Bengal is caught in between the Second World War without being part of the Second World War, just because it's part of the British Empire. Um, uh, Japan occupies Burma, which is the great, uh, you know, uh, grain uh, supplier uh, at that point of time. And uh, the whole allied forces are extremely threatened that uh, uh, Japan would attack India through Burma. So that becomes a very crucial theater point in, in Second World War, mostly unknown to the rest of the world, but extremely important in the context of uh, especially the Bengali history because uh, this creates uh, not only a great famine of 1943, where uh, more than 4 million people die. But it's also a time when um, uh, Calcutta and, and that time Bengal um, gets in a lot of American soldiers, British soldiers, uh, so and a and lot of Indian people are going out to other parts of the world fighting the war. And just to be clear, the British and Churchill decide that they are going to stop um, you know, they, they don't import grain from Burma anymore. They are not going to uh, – they take uh, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of boats from people so yes. that they cannot – so they, they barricade. Absolutely, absolutely. To be more precise, you see, Bengal is is a river in country, and and uh, uh, not only were boats burnt so that rice couldn't be uh, transported, uh, the British uh, uh, hoarded rice, uh, sent them to other places of the world where uh, the Second World War was being fought, just so that the Japanese army, if at all, would invade, would just move out from there without food. Uh, so that was the policy, and I think that was one of the greatest uh, man-made famines that the world has seen. And that's reflected in uh, several of the pieces in the exhibition, including yours. Yes, it has been touched upon by several artists. I have uh, specially emphasized on not only the war, uh, I have emphasized on uh, the famine and uh, to a great extent, what uh, uh, American GI soldier would have felt at that point of time in Calcutta, viewing uh, the uh, sea world scene at that point, and also trying to connect the whole project with American posters, uh, war propaganda posters, as well as memories of my childhood of war comics where uh, the hero American uh, soldier was out there uh, trying to uh, you know, get uh, the the freedom for his country and the Allied forces. So all that comes together uh, as part of memory and social history. 
do we have any photographs of the Rohingya? Because this is the same kind of territory as, uh, you know, the Burma and the, and Bangladesh uh, kind of a border. Uh, are there any pictures, photographs of the Rohingya? No, in not, not in this collection. No, no, this no. Collection. no. no. This, uh, uh, incidentally, possibly the uh, American GI who was taking these photographs were, was posted in one of the air bases around Karakpur. So most of the villages, temples, air bases are locations around Karakpur, which is Very uh, Bengal centric, and it's not the Rohingya population which is down in Burma and Bangladesh. Um, So I hope people can get out and check out what's going on at the Loyola University Museum of Art. The following the box exhibit opens tonight, July 6th, and people can come and uh, check out your opening this evening, Alan. Yes, and um, if I can just take a second to thank some people because we've been working on this project for years and years and years, and we are totally obsessed, and we hope that everybody will continue the story, but we particularly want to thank the, the unknown soldier. We still do not know who he is, but he has affected tens of thousands of people, which is really significant. Again. We want to thank our participating artists, without whom we would have nothing. Uh, thank you, Ellen. They thank really have just and done. They did a beautiful work. variety of things. It, everything the graphic was different. artists, the traditional artists. It's fantastic. Right. Everybody had a different approach. So we want to thank the Loyola University Museum of Art. We want to, uh, in particular, want to thank Natasha Ritzma, uh, who is the curator, and her unbelievable staff that have helped make this thing possible. And we want to thank Air India, which has uh, flown over several of our artists, and there will be two more artists coming in in October, so we want to give a special shout-out to Air India uh, and to the Fulbright, and uh, long may it wave. And also, one of the the very last thing is Kickstarter. We had launched a Kickstarter campaign, and we want to really thank all our supporters, all our friends throughout the year. We've been working on this for five years, and they had all been amazing. Jerry Zabriel and Alan Teller, the couple behind the Following the Box project. It is at the Loyola University Museum of Art through October 20th. And thanks very much for joining us, Chhatrapati Dato from India, and it's great to see you. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.